Hello. Yeah, everyone can hear me, can't you? I'll tell you what, I'm so glad to take that mask off. The last time I must have worn that mask, I had a curry, obviously. And for the last hour, I've just been stewing in the smell of stale curry. Not, not pleasant whatsoever. So praise the Lord, that can come off for a very small amount of time, as you'll be glad to hear. Um, so we're going to be speaking today from 1 John 5, verses 6 to 12. Um, so while you quickly get your Bibles open, um, if you don't know, my name's Pete. Um, I don't really know what I can tell you about myself. I'm married. There's my wife over there. Um, what's interesting about me? I don't know. Anyhow, let's move on to 1 John. Um, so as I say, 1 John 5, 6 to 12, uh, and it reads like this. So this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So uh, in my usual little style, I'm going to break down uh, this little section into three sections uh, and then go through them systematically and try and glean as much as we possibly can from each little bit. Um, so where have we come from? Uh, I don't know if you listened last week, but we had the privilege of, of hearing Graham speak. And we heard last week that our faith in Jesus Christ, Son of God, overcomes the world in that we keep the commandments of God. John tells us to be in Christ, and in these next few verses, he will confirm and instruct us about the deity of Christ and living with Christ, having Christ. So let's start with the first three verses, verses 6 to 8. Let's start with the first bit. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So we have uh, by water, or his baptism, and his blood, his death. And John makes sure to clarify this, that Christ came by blood. He says, not just water, but blood also. He makes to clarify that Christ actually died. Uh, John makes it clear that, that the Jesus he speaks of is not the Gnostic, Gnostic? I sound like I'm saying gnocchi. The g Gnostic? 
Gnostic. There's no silent weird N. It's just Gnostic. No silent G. There is a silent G. Whatever. Gnostic. Gnostic. Uh, there is no Gnostic phantom Jesus, which is one of the major heresies at the time, that Jesus wasn't actually a real man, but that he was a phantom. Uh, so he refutes this heresy. Uh, that Jesus is real. The Jesus we must believe in is the Jesus who came by water and by blood. The Jesus who was part of a real material flesh and blood earth. Just as I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, John loves weaving these themes through his first letter of John. Uh, And John is returning from a theme he started in the beginning of the letter about the real historical foundation for our trust in Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, the emphasis was on what was seen and heard and looked upon and handled. It was real stuff, real people, real things, just like water and blood are real. And so was the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We must believe this, that Jesus was a real guy. He was our king, but he was real. And this story really happened, the story of the resurrection happened. And then we have the Spirit who testifies. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter fifteen twenty-six, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who p- proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then later on in 1614, he says, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The spirit, the water, and the blood, these are all consistent witnesses in telling us who Jesus is. And uh, Spurgeon points out that a priest was always ordained by sacrificial blood, by cleansing water, and oil that spoke of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had all these three witnesses about his priestly ministry. Uh, We're going to take a quick second to talk about something really nerdy called the Johannine Comma. Did I say that right? My pronunciation is not on point today. So, if you happen to read uh, the King James Version or the New King James Version, you will have a slightly longer verse in verse 7 and 8 than any other translation in which John lays out a description of the Trinity and then parallels it with this idea of water, blood, and spirit. If you have other translations, you might see it in your footnote, or it might just not be there at all. Um, So only eight of the utter masses of Greek manuscripts that we have actually include this small variant. Uh, And in fact, four of those uh, are only actually footnotes on the Greek manuscript. I'm going to spare you from all the other evidence as to why these verses have been omitted, uh, because we all want to go home and eat dinner. But it's fair to say that this was the right one. And to come to this conclusion uh, that the variant would, was added is the right one. Why should we care? Why am I talking about it? Why am I 
bothering to mention it. Well, first of all, I'm a bit of a nerd, and absurdly, I find this stuff really interesting. Number two, your Bibles differ. Uh, the KGV came, or the New King James Version, has come, it derives itself from something called the Textus Receptus, uh, which comes in part from one of those eight manuscripts. And because our Bibles differ, and my Bible might say something that your Bible doesn't, it's definitely worth talking about. And the third one, the third reason why we're talking about this, is because we should care. This is the infallible, inerrant, life-filled Word of God, and we should care. We should care about how our Bibles have been constructed, and we should know that we can put our trust with confidence in its words. But anyhow, moving on. So the, the second little section of this scripture, verses 9 to 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If we receive the testimony of men, which may be true, we will always find the testimony of God to be greater. John does not want us to believe with blind faith. Instead, our faith is to be based on reliable testimony. And we have the most reliable testimony possible, the witness of God. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. When we believe in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit as an inner confirmation of our standing before God. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When we look at the parallel, however, we look at unbelief, and it says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony of God that has borne concerning his son. The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoke of lightly and in a very trifling spirit, as though it was scarcely any sin at all, yet According to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of Scripture, unbelief is the giving of God the lie. And what can be worse? Sorry, that was a Spurgeon quote. I forgot to introduce that. So that was Spurgeon, nice and strong. When we refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, we reject the testimony that God has given of his Son. And therefore, we call God a liar with our unbelief. Um, I've spoken about this verse, and we have as a church, many times before, but I'm going to read Romans uh, 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So there is proof. 
There is proof that God exists. There is proof that Jesus is the Son of God. There is proof that this wonderful, glorious gospel that we believe in actually happened. That it's not just a fable. It's not just Jesus isn't just a nice guy who we look at and learn stuff from. This stuff actually happened. And there is proof. We have the Holy Spirit. And if we do not believe, we are in fact without excuse because there is proof. So much of First John speaks about our assurance of salvation or our proof of salvation. He gives time in his letter both speaking to false teachers and also to the elect about their assurance they should have in their salvation. And it is a subject that causes the reader to either rest in the providence of God's faithfulness or to quake in terror. And we must work out our own salvation. Today, do we hold fast to the Spirit's testimony, to the blood and to the water, that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that he is the Son of God, that he has died for our sins? Or, or do we ignore it? Do we lie to God about our belief? Uh, and lastly, verses 11 to 12. 11 to 12 tells us the content of this testimony, this witness. And we don't often think about God witnessing to us. We often think of ourselves as witnessing for him, going out on the streets and telling him, or being part of this outreach or this outreach, and us witnessing to people. But we don't often think about God witnessing to us. But 11, uh, verses 11 to 12 describe the content of God's witness. And if there was any testimony in the courtroom of life that we ought to listen to, it would be God's testimony. And according to John, the testimony of God is this. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God has not life. So according to God's testimony, the way to have life is to have the Son. He who has the Son has life. And the reason we know it's eternal life is because verse 11 says God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. So the way to have eternal life is to have the son of God, Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean to have the son of God? Sounds a bit weird and I had never thought about it until I was preparing this. What does it mean to have the Son of God? I know what it means to be in the Son of God, to be hidden in Him, but what does it mean to have the Son of God? Uh, John Piper uh, points out that the word to have can communicate a few different nuances. For example, it doesn't mean the same thing when you say, I have a pound coin, or I have a cold, or I have a lawyer. To have a lawyer is not to have a lawyer in your pocket, but to have a pound coin is to have a pound in your pocket. If you have a cold, you don't own it like you would a pound coin, nor employ it like you do a lawyer, but we use the same word. But he says there is something common to all of those meanings. When you have something, it does its thing for you. 
If you have a pound coin, then it buys a pound coin's worth of stuff for you. If you have a cold, it makes water drip from your nose. If you have a lawyer, he stands in front of you. Having something means that it does its thing for you. To have Jesus means having all that Jesus came to do. And John sums it all up in the word life. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10. If you have the Son, no. In all of these things, it says in Romans that we are more than conquerors. He who has the, the Son can take all tribulation and distress and persecution, not just come out as some wounded, crippled soldier, but as a conqueror. In fact, he says those who have the Son are more than conquerors, which means that the Son of God takes the tribulations of your life and actually turns them for your good. You don't just escape your enemy, he serves you. And if you want to be more than a survivor, and indeed more than a conqueror in the battles of life, then you must have the Son. For he who has the Son of life, all that life that an uh, I can never say that word. I've written it, but I can't say it. Omnipotent God can give. Believe the Son. The Son of God has two goals. The liberation of his people from sin and death, and two, the glorification of his own powers. That is the, the origin of salvation. That is the source of eternal life. And to show that what he loves is the liberation of his people and the magnification of his power, his services are not for sale. He will not be paid. So how do you come to have the Son of God? He makes you a free offer, and you accept his offer, and you believe in him. He does his thing for those who believe in him. So to quickly recap, we find that there is proof for God. There is proof for Jesus Christ. There is proof of him being divine is proof of him being the son of God. And if we accept that proof, if we decide to believe in him, then we have life. We have eternal life. So why don't I pray? God, we, we thank you that you have awoken us to believe in you. We thank you that you have given us this gift of faith to believe in you. And in return, we are given life. We are given this opportunity to have Christ. We pray that our lives would glorify you. We pray that our lives would praise you. And we pray that we would be awakened to your evidence, to your proof, to your testimony that it would move in our lives, that the, your spirit would move in our lives and awaken us to you. Amen.